All right, welcome. Welcome to our show. This is The Nose. It's the end of the week. Uh, our specialty today is going to be our special of the day. That's what I should say. We have a couple of specials. Have you have you eaten with us before? We have a couple of specials I'd like you to know about. Uh, it involves talking about the West Wing, which, of course, is not a contemporary product at all. Although, yeah, starting yesterday on HBO Max, a, a staged replaying of one of the episodes was offered along with a lot of exhortations to vote in the coming election from the likes of Bill Clinton, Lin-Manuel Miranda, at Al. Uh, we'll tell you all about that and also about the five episodes of the old West Wing that we did watch. But before we come to that, we are going to talk, as we so often do, uh, about what sort of comedy is and is not possible here in 2020, in a time of COVID, in a time of Trump, uh, in a time of Black Lives Matter. What uh, can you get away with? What can't you? What should be allowed and what maybe isn't, even if it should be? I don't know. I'm babbling. So better to uh, introduce the guests right now. They are our panelists today, Rebecca Castellani, who handles social media marketing and event planning for Quiet Corner Communications. Uh, Teresa Kramer is freelance writer and editor and the co-founder of, of Quiet Corner Communications. Well, then. <laughs> Well then, um, I feel like <laughs> I, should, over. I should get a job at Quiet Corner Communications. I feel very left out. So what we're going to do here at the beginning, yeah, what we're going to do here at the beginning is we're going to combine two things. One of them is Bill Burr's somewhat controversial uh, opening monologue at Saturday Night Live last Saturday night. And I suggested pairing up with this uh, a piece that ran in the New York Times Sunday Magazine also last weekend uh, about political comedy in the age of Trump, specifically titled How President Trump Ruined Political uh, Comedy. I think we can sort of put these two together pretty well. Uh, but before we do that, let's just hear, hear a little bit. If you don't know who Bill Burr is, I guess we it would be helpful for you to know that he kind of specializes in trying to figure out how he could offend you almost irrespective of what your politics are. Uh, and so here's what that sounds like. Just to refresh your memory, the woke movement was supposed to be about people of color not getting opportunities, the at-bats that they deserved, finally making that happen. And it was about that for about eight seconds. And then somehow, white women swung their Gucci-booted feet over the fence of oppression and stuck themselves at the front of the line. I don't know how they did it. I've never heard so much complaining in my life from white women. My life is so hard eh, with my SUV and my heated seats. You have no idea what it's like to be me. <laughs> Trash and white guys, the nerve. Where's the camera? The nerve of you white women. Let me, I, listen, I don't want to speak ill on my bitches here, okay? I don't, but let's, let's go back in history here, okay? You guys stood by us toxic white males through centuries of our crimes against humanity. You rolled around in the blood muddy, and occasionally when you wanted to sneak off and hook up with a black dude, if you got caught, you said it wasn't consensual. Yeah, that's what you did. That's what you did. And it went on kind of like that. It had uh, some things to say about, uh, about Pride Month, um, well, yeah, there was something to offend just about everybody, and almost everybody did seem to get offended. So, except possibly our two guests here. Um, so, yeah, Teresa, get us started. I know you've been kind of a Bill Burr fan for some time. I have been a Bill, 
I have been a Bill Burr fan and, um, you know, for a while he seemed like he kind of went off the rails for me. He said, if you listen to his podcast or anything where he's allowed to just talk by himself for a while, it's like he's gone off the rails, but, um, and just like screaming into the void. But when he brings it all back together for a stand-up set, apparently he can kind of get his point of view across a little bit better, um, you know, and write a solid joke that manages to, um, you know, it it really points out the hypocrisy of so many sort of liberal white people. I mean, that's really what this set was about in in a lot of ways. You know, he was making jokes in support of people of color, in support of science and all the things we know we have to do to fight COVID. And somehow people still got mad at him for that. I mean, it makes very little sense to me. And um, when I started looking for the reaction on, say, Twitter, one of the things that stood out to me was Roxanne Gay, who is a very famous feminist of color, loved it. You know, so if you, I feel like if you understand humor and appreciate comedy, you can get this. But if you're the kind of person who just thinks everything is always got to be about you and come from your point of view, then you just like lose, lose the train of thought and, you know, get angry and make everything about you. Um, yeah. Well, Rebecca, give, give me your thoughts, too. Yeah, I mean, I'm in total agreement with Teresa and the reaction to this. I thought it was very funny. I thought it was very clever. I thought that he really lampooned, as Teresa said, liberal white people. And let's be real, that's largely the audience that's watching SNL. So it was a perfect opportunity to set his crosshairs on that group of people. And I find that the people that are reacting negatively to it are coming from this knee-jerk cancel culture place where, you know, everything's a nail and you're a hammer and there is no discrepancy. There is no space for sarcasm. There's no space for nuance in a joke. And there's no space for introspection and, and laughing at oneself as opposed to just having this angry, reactive response to anything. And again, like, I, I think cancel culture has value. I think that certain people deserve to be canceled and certain jokes should not be told because they are offensive. That's not what Bill Burr did. His, what was offensive about the jokes was part of the joke that was making it funny. It wasn't just being offensive for offensive sake. So I feel like that's what gets lost for a lot of these people that are clamoring and having this knee-jerk reaction saying, oh, Bill Burr's garbage. He's canceled. It's just because they don't, they're not paying attention. They're not listening. They're not understanding. They're just coming from a place of anger. Well, one thing that I've been thinking a lot about, and I've been thinking a lot about it for a couple of years here while doing this show, is that comedy, particularly sort of the Netflix comedy special, has drifted towards, with a few notable exceptions, Burr being one of them, people performing in front of enormously pre-enthusiastic, absolutely yeah. indoctrinated mm-hmm. crowds. So whether it's Ellen DeGeneres or Jerry Seinfeld or whoever, they go out there and people, I mean, they could just, you know, say some prepositions or something and people would be laughing, screaming, <laughs> clapping, you know. And, and, and Burr is, I mean, he did a Netflix special not too long ago in front of an audience in Tennessee where he was doing some anti-Trump material where he that he knew he wouldn't have the audience. He 
he absolutely knew he wouldn't have them, just the same way he was kind of daring the Saturday Night Live audience uh, to reject him. He's maybe the most famous moment of his career was this kind of all-star comedy live outdoor special, I think, in Philadelphia, where the crowd, Philadelphia style, had turned so ugly <laughs> that some of the comedians wouldn't go out, uh, like some name comedians wouldn't go out there because the crowd had just turned so unbelievably ugly. And Burr went out there and ditched his routine and just attacked Philadelphia <laughs> and attacked the fans. And it's it, you can find it on YouTube. I mean, it really is pretty amazing. And after a while, they start laughing because of his fearlessness. But I mean, huh. that does sort of turn us a little bit, Teresa, towards, you know, the, the piece in, in uh, the New York Times where, yeah, one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and, and Rebecca just alluded to it, was uh, the writer talked to some writers on The Daily Show who said, yeah, we kind of can't do sarcasm anymore because people need to know that we're on their side. Uh, people are uncomfortable if there's any doubt about whether we're on their side. <laughs> and, and I get exactly what they're saying. I'm sure you do, too. But there's something kind of sad about that, too. Oh, it's definitely very sad. And it feels to me like, um, well, first of all, I, I want like you're showing up to a daily show, um, a daily show taping, and you don't know that they're already on your side. You can't wait the extra 30 seconds to get through the entire joke to understand that, like where it's going. That's almost ridiculous to me. Um, I, I mean, there could not be a more big liberal mouthpiece than the daily show. Right. But at the same time, I think comedy audiences almost need to have their hand held at this point. And there's, there seems to be that the, seems to me that there is this sort of generation of comedians who came up wanting to be a daily show correspondent or host. And so they have sort of put the politics before the comedy and there's a sort of, um, audience for that where they're really just there to get their you know their own views reinforced they're not really there to laugh and see and 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 hear a finely crafted joke they just they just want to like make fun of the people who don't agree with them Right. And, and uh, you know, it's interesting because one of the couple of the th there are a couple of through lines, Papulian through lines uh, mm -hmm. between our A segment and our B segment. And one of them is, Rebecca, that, you know, the Daily Show came of age really during the Bush administration. And, and you know, Jon Stewart's just palpable outrage at things that were happening and, and also his fury at the media, too, which is something I think the Daily Show doesn't do quite as much uh, uh, anymore. Mm -hmm. But, you know, just in the same sense that much of I think what we see on the West Wing is a reaction uh, a little bit to what they perceived as a problem with the Bush administration. But I mean, maybe one way the ground has shifted is that you can no longer be sure you understand what a prominent figure is saying and whether that person means it or not, particularly if it's Trump. You know, I mean, last night uh, he did his town hall and he said, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't even think masks work. And you know, and Savannah Guthrie sort of became us, right? Saying, "Are you being I'm like, ready for the rapture?" <laughs> I mean, but but Rebecca, I wonder if that's the the kind of epistemic crisis, you know, where we're no longer sure whether people are being sarcastic, especially the president of the United States. Maybe it does make comedy a little bit less layered or harder to do nuance. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that. And I'm happy to blame Trump 100% for this. Um, I, I find that Trump 
the thing that makes me nervous about him is that, you know, we can sense those moments when he's veering into sarcasm and is probably not saying things completely straight. And I'm sure there's some percentage of his base that understands that. But I fear the most is that people are taking him completely seriously. And Savannah Guthrie did a lovely job last night of saying, you know, you're not someone's crazy uncle on Facebook. You can't just be retweeting QAnon stuff and letting that go out into the world of the platform. And he's like, oh, you know, retweets, retweets. He's he's creating this this echo chamber around him that people are believing and sarcasm aside, humor aside, I mean, it's dangerous and it's scary. And I don't think you can make jokes anymore about the president when he is a such a joke and be creating an environment where there's not even room for humor because we're still so focused on figuring out what's true and what's not. You know, there's got to be some degree of like consistency of, of information for a joke to work. Like we all have to be somewhat on the same page. Masks are good. Science is good. And by poking holes in all of that, it just becomes satire. I mean, it's impossible. It, it's like reading Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal. Like There are people that read that straight and would probably read it straight today. And it's it's wild and crazy to the people that recognize what it is. But I don't even think Trump knows he's being sarcastic most of the time. Although, you know, the, the, Times, know. the Times piece kind of semi-persuasively took the position that Trump does know and that he's kind of doing an impersonation of a president who's slightly different from who he is. I mean... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I I think that that would be nice. I would like to believe that, but like I and I think Trump to some degree is aware of that, but I don't think the base is aware of that. Like I think that they are everyone is taking him completely at face value. It's also not appropriate for him to be doing, right? Like there's a difference between Bill Burr getting to go out and be sarcastic and make jokes and the president of the United States Right. retweeting conspiracy theories like like whether he's serious or not like you're still the president you you know unless you're at the correspondence center where you're at, or you have somehow otherwise you know there's some other context that makes it okay for you to be making like jokes and for people to understand that you're making jokes like it, it's just completely inappropriate for him to be doing. And we all know that sar sarcasm in particular does not come across well in written form. Like you, you shouldn't be doing it in emails. If you're doing it on Twitter, right. you have to like almost set it apart as like, just in case you didn't get it, I'm being sarcastic because, you know, right. tone of voice matters so much when it comes to sarcasm. Right. I, I, I have so many thoughts about this, including the fact that, you know, I mean, historically presidents, when it came to comedy, mostly their job was to be a good sport about what was being said about them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so Clinton, it was uh, he ate too many French fries and he chased women uh, with Bush. Uh, 43, it was he was dumb. Um, supposedly, I, I actually read a piece uh, in which a comedy writer, a Democrat who wrote a lot of George W. Bush's jokes for those White House correspondence dinners, said that Bush thought that was actually pretty funny and he enjoyed those jokes. And, and this guy was very proud of having written a joke for Jeb Bush in two, 2006. Uh, he did uh, a little thing at one of those kinds of dinners. And Jeb said, you know, I was talking to my brother the other day and he says he wants to run for a third term. And I told him, you can't do that. It says in the Constitution that you can't do that. And my brother said, really, the Constitution mentions me? Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, there was sort of a sense, well, OK, we're all going to laugh at that, including Bush. One of the things that I think I notice about Trump is that I do think he's trying to be a comedian comedian and sometimes he's a pretty successful comedian the difference is he doesn't think anything is funny about him i mean in other mm -hmm. words 
whatever the whatever we would decide the 15 equivalents of those jokes about Clinton or, or Bush would be, he wouldn't think those were funny. And to me, that's one of the problems with him as a comic figure. Really oh, totally. I, I totally agree. I've heard comics who, you know, there was a Trump roast on Comedy Central, you know, years ago, oh, long yeah. before this, yeah. this national nightmare of ours. Um, and the comedians who I've heard comedians who wrote for it saying like he came in with a list a mile long of things you could not joke about. And he has no sense of humor about himself, which is sort of, the, but wants to go out and, um, he, you know, his he wants to be a larger than life character and he doesn't really care in what um, arena of life that is, whether it's political or business or just a reality television show. And so he wants to be an entertainer, really. And but he, you know, he can't take as well as he gives and it ends up being lopsided, but also irresponsible. The, the piece, I also find you his humor very cruel. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think that, you know, if you're going to be a comedian and your only jokes are punching down at people in less of a powerful situation than you, like, is that comedy? No, it's not. It's just an asshole. I don't know if I can say that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you get there. You, you can figure out at home where I was going with that. Like, you're not being a comedian. You're just being cantankerous and rude. Yeah, is that comedy? Like, yeah. I think of him mocking like that, that poor journalist. Like, I, I just, mm -hmm. I don't know. That's well, how he right. Jokes. He the, just says mean things and thinks they're funny, right. Right? which are two totally right. different things. You know, exactly. you, you, he says horrible He's things about Rosie troll. O'Donnell or whoever, and he thinks that's a joke. And it, it's not a joke. If he went up on a stand up stage and tried to do his material, you'd be like, what is this mom. mess? Although a lot of people had a yeah. similar reaction to Bill Burr, right? That, you know, he's just being mean. Um, and, and he's, you know, he's saying horrible things about me, you know, whoever I am <laughs> watching this, uh, and he's being cruel unnecessarily. And I think the template for both of these guys, to a certain degree, they're both descendants a little bit of Don Rickles. So we are about to play a clip that we have played three <laughs> previous times, and we're going to flush this <laughs> clip out the airlock now. After we use it this time, it's going out the airlock. But one of the things that I've tried to point out in the past is that Trump clearly is a student of Don Rickles, that he listened to Don Rickles a lot. So I'm going to, if you haven't heard this clip or haven't heard it more than two times, um, <laughs> just, just listen to where the beat is in each of these two jokes, one from Clinton, one from uh, Rickles, the other, I think, a joke from Trump. Here we go. That's right. I make fun of my own people. We're the chosen people. That's right. But what does it mean? We're human beings. Jew, Gentile, Irish, Negro, Puerto Rican. Ah, uh, Puerto Rican, that's trouble. If she gets to pick her judges, nothing you can do, folks. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know. But So the beat is pretty much in the same place. Boom, 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 boom. Up. Well, maybe this, you know, um, and the difference is that Rickles and the, the piece that we read in the Times made this point. Rickles was laughing the whole time, laughing at everything, mm -hmm. laughing at himself, laughing at, mm -hmm. you know, and Trump doesn't laugh when he says these things. Um, and, and I think that's what makes them scary. I mean, we didn't know how to interpret that remark about Second Amendment people. Was he really suggesting that they could go shoot Hillary Clinton or was he kind of doing a Don Rickles? And, and so much of it with Burr, you could kind of tell, right? You know, that 
that he was sort of living in both of those worlds, the world where he offends you and the world that where he's offended by what you're offended by. The thing about Trump that makes him not a comedian, I think, is he doesn't inhabit any world except the world uh, of his own perceptions and arguments. Anybody? Yeah. Anybody? No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I, jokes. I, I totally agree with you. I, I mean, I think well, the thing, though, for me, really, is like, yeah, we don't know if Trump is serious, but the problem is he's in a position of power and is so influential over a group of people that whether he's serious or not doesn't matter because if those people think he's serious and go out and, right. and commit violence, which they have at this point, like, you know, you have to take some responsibility for that. Whereas like, you know, when you go see a comedian, you probably don't think they're serious. Like you don't, you don't think you've just gotten the go ahead from the president of the United States of America to commit a crime, no matter what Bill Burr says. Yeah, um, we, we're going to have to take a break here in a second. But I guess, you know, Rebecca, one thing that I was struck by in that piece was that uh, I think it mentioned that seven comedy shows have been started since Trump got into office, all of them taking kind of a, a liberal point of view or using uh, comedy to, to score liberal points. And six of them are gone. Uh, Samantha B is the only one still, still standing from that whole process. And, and, and I'm wondering if it I mean, part of it is, I think. You know, you almost have to do what people like Dave Chappelle and Bill Burr do so well, which is kind of crawl down into the abyss and partake uh -huh. of the abyss. You know, you can't I think it's harder to fly above it and then talk about Trump because, I mean, there's so many things about him that are so obviously objectionable. How do you make them funny unless you somehow or other join in the darkness somehow? No, I mean, I completely agree. I think the the age of, you know, when they go low, we go high is over. I don't think that works anymore. I don't think there is a high place to be in. I think we're all just <laughs> down in the mud trying to figure out if the president is making a joke or inciting white supremacy. I, It's just, I can't even, I can't see the humor in any of this anymore. I can't watch these daily shows. I don't laugh. I just feel sad. <laughs> I really don't have. And so that's why I liked, I really liked what Bill Burr did because it did feel like, okay, this is humor that is resonating right now in this garbage moment we're in where nothing makes sense and it's all backwards. And he's talking to that moment as opposed to just kind of either, you know, doing his own set that's got nothing to do with the moment and, and doesn't communicate to the moment. So I thought it was very successful and agree. And then Chappelle did the same thing. I mean, it definitely is probably the only comedy that really works right now. All right, Which we have to sad. take a little break here, uh, and uh, yes, on that uplifting note, uh, we have to take a little break, <laughs> and sorry. we are actually even going to try to do get you to pledge a little bit of uh, money to the station. It's the last day of our pledge drive. I know you'll be happy about that. We're happy about it, too. Here come some nice people to try to coax you into participating. Please consider doing it during the time span of our show. It helps our show quite a bit. Ah, the Copeland-esque uh, opening chords of the West Wing, which I think all three of us have probably been walking around the house humming because when you watch five episodes in a row, it kind of gets in your head. So here's kind of the Papulian through line here. Bill Burr began his comedy routine last Saturday on Saturday Night Live talking about masks and say, said, yeah, now we're listening to the eggheads, the people we used to cheat off of at high school. Um, well... 
Well, that's pretty much the entire plot of West Wing, <laughs> is that the eggheads, the people you used to cheat off in high school, uh, have now assumed positions of great power. They are all very smart. Nobody is smarter than the president himself, who has been smarter than everybody else his entire life. Uh, it is very much, I mean, it's competence porn on steroids. Uh, <laughs> and yet there are flies in the ointment. There are flaws. There are cracks in the perfect egg. And we watched a five episode arc uh, in which uh, the biggest crack of all appears, which is that the president and his wife have omitted uh, somehow or other, the information for many years, including during his first presidential campaign, that he has MS. Uh, I think it's called recurring remitting MS. Uh, he has MS, uh, and now it's about to come out, and they have to decide what they're going to do about it. Uh, there's some obvious problems with the fact that they just haven't ever told anybody that she gives him shots uh, to, you know, to to ward off uh, outbreaks and things like that. So let's hear a clip first. Uh, here is the uh, estimable uh, Martin Sheen as President Bartlett. He's talking to his lawyer, played by Oliver Pl uh, Platt, and to make things simple, his name is Oliver also in the series. He's Oliver Babich. Uh, and this is he's White House counsel. So he's telling He's telling the president how he thinks he should get through that. Uh, yeah, I almost got my presidents mixed up here. He's telling Bartlett how to get through this. Here we go. What would my first step be? First, tell your staff. Yeah. Then, decide how to make a public announcement. Yeah. Then, order the attorney general to appoint a special prosecutor. Not just any special prosecutor. The most blood-spitting, Bartlett-hating Republican in the bar. He's going to have an unlimited budget and a staff like an army. The new slogan around here is going to be, bring it on. He's going to have access to every piece of paper you ever touched. If you invoke executive privilege one time, I'm gone. An assistant DA in Ducksworth wants to take your deposition, you're on the next plane. A freshman congressman wants your testimony, you'll sit in his kitchen. They want to drag you to The Hague and charge you with war crimes. What do we say? All right. So there we go. So, um, Rebecca, uh, because you are such a young spirit, uh, this would not have uh, really been anywhere on your radar screen the first time around. So, yes, as a as a new initiate, what was this like for you? So it kind of was on my radar screen growing up. I was always aware that that was like the token adult show. And that's what the adults did when we went to bed. And I always had this like allure, like the West Wing has got to be so juicy. And then I remember one night sneaking downstairs and kind of watching it through the stairwell crack and being like, man, this is really boring. And so I never <laughs> revisited the West Wing in my adulthood until this week. And oh my gosh, it's amazing. I loved it. I cried. I laughed. I mourned the dignity of the office that it no longer has. And this cast is amazing. I mean, it, it really, really holds up. And I am not a huge Aaron Sorkin fan. So I was kind of going into this begrudgingly, but I couldn't stop watching it. We were assigned to watch five episodes, and I probably watched 15 and got no work done this week. So thank you. And also, no, thank you for getting no work done. It was okay, great, so, though. Teresa, you're kind of on the, on the other end of this. Uh, you, you've been with West Wing. For, you actually are all, almost a Bartlett appointee at this point. I yeah, <laughs> I, um, <laughs> I didn't actually watch it when in, in its original run. I watched it maybe 2013, 14, something like that. 
started watching it for the first time and I really loved it the first time through. I couldn't stop watching it really. It, it, it still is very just deeply watchable, but I, I feel like as is the case with so many shows, the more you watch them, the more you see their flaws. And so um, in this particular series, one of the, one of those flaws, I, I, and by series, I mean these, you know, five episodes that we were asked to watch about Bartlett's illness, is that they make this idea that this president has this secret illness, the um, this huge deal, which completely ignores the uh, Amer American history, right? So we had FDR who hid the fact that he was in a wheelchair for years. Reagan was clearly suffering from dementia for much of his presidency. Wilson actually had a stroke and his wife basically had to run the country and no one cared. So why Toby would be so up in arms about the president having a disease that pretty much has no impact on his ability to do the job sort of became beyond me. I was like, I just didn't get the outrage anymore. Yeah, although I, I will say, first of all, you, you did yeah. leave out JFK, who might have been the yes. closest parallel. JFK was a very, very sick man uh, mm -hmm. for the entire time he was in office. And on top of that, he was receiving these injections from a doctor named, I think, Max Jacobson, uh, mm -hmm. these injections of human placenta and amphetamines and massive oh. doses of vitamins. Uh, this is a, you were like a middle, Saturday night. You were in the yeah. middle of like, you know, a Cold War standoff with Russia. And he's not only incredibly sick and disabled by you know, multiple ailments but also getting these weird treatments that might mess up his mind. I, I Actually, I'm going to push back against that, Teresa, though, okay. and say I think there really is a problem to run for president when you have MS and not tell anybody, uh, mm -hmm. particularly if you're running as some kind of moral beacon, uh, which is what he was. And one of my problems with these five episodes is that they are five episodes about a pretty significant moral lapse at, during which, although there's all kinds of reflection about all kinds of things and even the bizarre Sorkin-esque spectacle of President Bartlett standing in an otherwise empty church yelling at God in Latin, which mm -hmm. is like the only Aaron Sorkin <laughs> would write a scene like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, but what there isn't is any moral reflection about that at all. In other words, at no point in those five episodes, as far unless I missed it, do we hear Martin Sheen or, for that matter, Stalker Channing as his wife say, here's why we did it. Here's why we thought it was okay. Here's what we were thinking about it then. Mm -hmm. Here's how we think about it now. There is conversation about every other damn thing in the world except what mm -hmm. I would regard to be the most pressing question. Why did you think that was okay to do? Why did you do something like that? And, well, I think, did I I think to my point, if they had mentioned this history, right, of presidents who had illnesses, concealed them or not, um, that would have been a great way of explaining the decision. Like, I didn't think it was a big deal because of so-and-so. Um, but they didn't, to your point. I feel like the implication was that he did do it on the on the show he went on with his wife, the first lady. Um, but we didn't see that. We just got mm. the end of it and then his press conference after. So I feel like they kind of set it up like there was your like emotional explanation, but that's not what we're getting on the show. We're getting like the behind the scenes, the stress, the clinical response. But I did think that was a misstep because I was very impressed with the way they handled the act of discussing the disease itself. My mother has relapsing, remitting MS, and it's just not something that you see represented in the media very often. You hear about, you know, progressive MS and it's often 
portrayed as somebody in a wheelchair or someone really disabled and to talk about relapsing or remitting, which you know, people don't have a ton of knowledge about, and it is very manageable. I thought that they handled that really well. They spoke, they used the right medical terms. So I really appreciated that, but I wish that, as you guys are saying, like that was paired with some more of the like the emotion behind it, the, the reason why they made this decision, his fear of, you know, being perceived as weak or being perceived as unfit to hold the office. Like that would have been the next step for it, which I, I, we didn't get. We should leave a little time here to make sure we talk about the other thing that we watched, which dropped yesterday, I believe, Thursday. HBO Max dropped a, um, a special, a, a West Wing special, brings together everybody that well, most of the major players from the original cast, minus, of course, John Spencer, who played the chief of staff, Leo, who's now died. Sterling K. Brown took his place. So this was a shot on stage before an empty theater um, restaging uh, of one of the show's prior episodes, I believe, from the third season. Uh, and um, and so I, well, obviously everybody's gotten a little bit older. The men seem to have aged a lot more than the women for the most part. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Donna still pretty much looks like Donna. And Marley Matlin, who is not actually in this, but comes on during, there are all these um, interstitial pitches telling people to vote. People like Bill Clinton, Lynn manuel Miranda, and some of the cast members tell you how to vote, why to vote, and what not to worry about when you're voting. Uh, Marley Matlin seems utterly unscathed by time. She played mm-hmm. a pollster in the original West Wing. But I, I just want to get sort of just your general reactions. Uh, yeah, uh, Teresa, why don't you lead us off here? I really quite liked it. It was... Um sort of soothing in a way. I mean, it's almost the opposite of a normal Sorkin show. It felt so much slower <laughs> that uh, I think Colin, you pointed out that they couldn't really do the walk and talks that they're famous for because it was um, staged, you know, they're basically in an empty black box theater almost and just performing with bare bones sets. And it's, it's, it comes across really quite nicely. I think, I mean, I think they call it the West wing live and it, it did not seem live at all. It was clearly edited, filmed and edited, but I still thought the effect of it was pretty cool. I'm a, you know, at the same time, the idea was that this was supposed to raise awareness of voting for voting for the, I think it's when we all vote was the charity it's supposed to be benefiting. I'm not really clear on how it benefited them um, other than raising awareness. But, um, you know, some of the Sorkin-esque, I, I, and I think, Colin, you probably agree with me on this, though, like, I'm smarter than everybody and we're going to talk down to you if you don't agree with us, really came up still really came across in this live version of it. Oh, yes. Well, uh, yeah, I want to get Rebecca's thoughts, but but I will come back to that and I will yeah. agree with you. Um, I mean, keep in mind, this episode consists partly, the structure of this episode is the president playing chess with several of his subordinates, beating the crap out of them effortlessly and trying to impart complex lessons of either domestic politics or geopolitics to them while he's doing it. Once again, only Sorkin could write an episode like this. But yeah, Rebecca. I loved it. I thought that it has, you know, all that gravitas of theater. I really appreciate this movement towards making theater more accessible. Uh, I loved it. They put Hamilton on Disney Plus. Again, I think it's there's a little bit of irony here that all of these things are behind paywalls and you have to be able to have HBO yeah. Max or Disney Plus to access this stuff. But I do think it was a very 
interesting way to handle a reboot. I thought it was, Teresa said, very soothing. I thought it captured a lot of the same aesthetic qualities of the show, that sort of like unvarnished, lived-in space. The the actors retained all their regular chemistry, even though they'd aged. I, I just thought it was very cool being exposed to the show for the first time this week and then having this opportunity to kind of catch up with everyone and see where they were and, and see how that dynamic hasn't changed and they just fell back into these roles so effortlessly. So I thought it was very special and if you're a fan of the West Wing, I would definitely recommend it. I, I loved the structure of this and how the music was handled and the, the the shots of people kind of backstage, offstage or when, you know, when the rehearsal was down, just people schmoozing and laughing uh, and falling back into their old relationships. I thought all of that was terrific. But yeah, to, to Teresa's point, there is this thing that Sorkin can't let go of. And Rebecca, you you had the exact same thought that I did uh, in our pre-communications. What did they do to you in high school, Aaron? Because there's this, <laughs> there's this sense where he is constantly not only having to assert the fact that it's really good to be smart, but also that yeah. people have no right to hate you for being smart. And you shouldn't have <laughs> yeah. to conceal how smart you are. And, and these are things that most people don't feel quite as acutely as Sorkin and his characters seem to. And and this point just gets made over and over and over again until I, even I, who have been accused throughout my life of performative smartness, and perhaps not unjustifiably, uh, but even I got tired of it. And if I got tired of it, I can't imagine what somebody else is feeling. Anyway, we have to take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll make some recommendations. <laughs> All right, uh, time for me to thank Kat Pastor. She's there in the studio making all this th all this stuff work so well and keeping the drama down to almost nothing. Uh, and uh, it also makes it possible for Jonathan McPants, who, by the way, is the person who figured out that they couldn't do the walk and talk on West Wing and not me. Uh, Jonathan McPants, producer of this episode, can work remotely. We're going to be back on Monday with a scramble, our downer show, as Betsy Kaplan uh, said uh, during the last pledge break. It is not our downer show. And actually, we have Tony Schwartz, uh, Trump's ghostwriter on. I think that'll be fun. And meanwhile, it's also fun to be with Rebe Rebecca Castellani and Teresa Kramer. We're going to have them make some recommendations to you right now. Uh, Rebecca, why don't you go first? Okay. Uh, last week, I watched The Haunting of Bly Manor on Netflix, and it was surprisingly good. I'm a big Henry James fan. Turn of the Screw is one of my favorite books, and I thought the adaptation was very clever and interesting, and it uh, actually had some source material from other unpublished Henry James ghost stories. So if you're looking for a spooky Halloween show that's secretly kind of a love story and it's fantastic, um, would be Haunting of Bly Manor on Netflix. And then this week I, YouTube for some reason, recommended to me Miley Cyrus's recent cover of Blondie's Heart of Glass. And I just love Miley Cyrus's covers. I think it's a real opportunity for her voice to shine without all this, you know, auto-tune trapping. And it is great. She has got the same energy as Blondie. Her raspy voice fits the song perfectly. It's on YouTube. I think it was part of iHeartRadio's virtual fest. So if you're looking for a good bop, Miley Cyrus's cover of Heart of Glass is fire. All right. Uh, Teresa Kramer, how about you? Um, I'm going to recommend a podcast I've been listening to called Paper Ghosts. Um, it's a true crime podcast. And, you know, as far as true crime podcasts, it's pretty middle of the road. But it's 
about local stories of a few girls who went missing in the Vernon, Tolland, Ellington area in the late 60s and 70s. And um, it's not over yet, but it feels like the host, who's also local, he's a true crime writer named M. William Phillips, is making some real headway into these cases. Like, it seems like he's got some pretty um, probable suspects and um, turned up some new evidence, possibly. And so it's just, um, you know, it's kind of a more local spin on the very popular true crime genre. All right. So that does sound good. All right. So uh, very quickly, if you have not tried out Parkville Market yet, if you live anywhere near Hartford and you haven't tried out Parkville Market, which is sort of our attempt at a Chelsea market, a big cavernous building rehabbed into a lot of little food spaces. Uh, it, it very, it's very takeout friendly. It is hopping and bustling a lot of the time. Uh, but we got takeout from Twisted Italian Cafe last night and it was a very, oh. very good. And I'm also going to quickly recommend, because I think it's still up on HBO, The Fighter, which is uh, a David Russell pick, uh, and it, it does the thing that David O. Russell does so well, which is explore dysfunctional family dynamics and then have somebody, usually uh, a young woman character, in this case Amy Adams, explode the dysfunction and watch mm-hmm. the uh, family kind of recalibrate and find its new equilibrium. And it's all against, of course, the backdrop of an actual boxing story. So The Fighter, it's terrific. HBO's got it. Better watch it soon. And here come the nice people to ask you to support uh, what we do here please do it while we're on the air and thanks so much to Teresa Kramer and Rebecca Castellani always great to have two of you on the air and we'll be back on Monday with our downer show according to some people talk about Torrington